0: Good to see you all. We are in the season of Epiphany, which is the season of revelation and response, right? Where we tell these great stories about Jesus and we ask, what's being revealed here about God, about us, and how do we respond? So that's what we're going to do today. In the early 1900s, the best major league baseball team in America was the Boston Red Sox. They won five out of the first 15 World Series, including three of four from 1915 to 1918, largely on um, the performance of their ace left-handed pitcher, an emerging slugger named Babe Ruth. We also, we just lost the lights in here because somebody um, figure out how to turn those back on so we can see people's faces. That would be great. So um, the Sox beat the Cubs in the eight. Um, 1918 World Series, and then inexplicably, their owner, a guy named Harry Frazee, sold Babe Ruth to their arch rival, the New York Yankees, to finance a Broadway musical called No No Nanette. <laughs> yeah, which I, I, I was actually in No No Nanette when I was in high school. It's my big claim of fame. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is this an odd move. They gave away one of the greatest players of all time to finance a musical. Like, this did not sit well with sports fans. It was so bad that people thought it kind of cursed the Red Sox, right? They called it the curse of the Bambino. And Boston then went without a World Series victory for the next 86 years. Until 2003, when the Red Sox made a personnel move that many think was as revolutionary as trading away Babe Ruth. They signed to a one-year contract a lumbering 53-year-old right-hander from Lawrence, Kansas, six feet, four inches tall, well over 200 pounds, a guy by the name of Bill James. Bill James grew up in Holton, Kansas, moved to Lawrence, Kansas to go to KU. Um, Wasn't very athletic, but he was smart and studied English and economics getting a degree in both. Then he he did a stint in the Army. He was actually the last person um, from Kansas to be sent to Vietnam. And afterwards, he came back home to KU, got a third degree in education, and thought he might make a living as a teacher. But what he really wanted to do was to write about baseball. That's what he wanted. And so he took this job, keeping an eye on the furnaces at the Stokely Van Camp Pork and Beans plant in in Lawrence, Kansas. And the job paid well and he worked nights, which allowed him free uninterrupted time to write and to think mostly about baseball. And Bill James became a self-described baseball agnostic, which means that he questioned all the settled beliefs about baseball, things like that MLB players peak in their early 30s, that was what everybody thought, or that starting pitchers drive attendance at games, or that stealing bases produced more runs and was really about speed. Baseball's conventional wisdom was, it was intense, and it was kind of reinforced by this long tradition and by an army of scouts and coaches and GMs and radio and television commentators, but Bill James didn't buy any of it. He wanted objective proof. And as an economist, he knew how to compile and analyze data to try and predict outcomes. And so he he put his training to work and cataloged every conceivable MLB stat, creating these new statistical formulas to analyze the data and pioneering brand new ways to think about Baseball, and this is like mid-70s, so there's no computers or internet. All stats were done by hand. And so every night he would lug his homemade baseball encyclopedia and a stack of box scores um, to his boiler room post where he compiled um, evidence and ran calculations and started proving things like players actually peak in their late 20s or starting pitchers have zero effect on attendance or Stealing Bases, is largely about pitchers and catchers. He compiled all these stats for an entire season, and then he, he would put them together in a report. And in 1977, James placed a one-inch ad in the back of the Sporting News. Remember the Sporting News? I remember getting this as a kid. And it advertised his baseball abstract featuring 18 statistical categories you can't find anywhere else. That's what it said. It was 68 pages long mimeographed remember mimeographed things that were like purple purple like letters he sold 75 copies in his first year although instantly um interestingly um the playwright norman mailer and the um, screenwriter william goldman both got copies but 75 copies is like can't make a living on that and so he kept at it producing a new volume every year and they got bigger and bigger, and he ended up naming his approach Sabermetrics. Have you guys heard of Sabermetrics? Yeah, like it's really popular now. It stands for the Society for American Baseball Research. And in his guide, he, would, he created these new stats that nobody had ever thought to calculate before. Things like runs created, which is a player's percent contribution to each run scored. Or range factor was a way to measure defense or win shares a player's contribution percent contribution to a win, or major league equivalency, which is a way to take minor league stats and kind of show what they would be in, in the majors he was trying to gain an audience and so he would he would write up these stats, but then he would like say these kind of outrageous or, or kind of artistic things like he said that the, the Houston Astros are to baseball what jazz is to music like I have no idea what that means, but that's what he said. Or he said this, that, that the way managers have tested the limits of starting pitchers is a bit like the way they used to test people for witches by dunking them in ponds, basically. That's what he said they did. He's very critical of managers, very critical of legendary players like Pete Rose, Art Howe, Catfish, Hunter, and especially of all the old scouts and GMs. He called them... An assortment of half-wits, nincompoops, and Neanderthals. (laughs) Yeah, so he was popular with those guys. And he made all these claims that directly confronted settled baseball wisdoms. Like he said, batting average was kind of a nonsense statistic by itself. His new on-base percentage was a much better stat. He said that bunting and stealing bases was kind of an unnecessary risk. It didn't help that much. And that his new stat that he created called OPS, that's on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, was a true indicator of offensive performance at the plate. He said teams and managers overvalued things like bunting and stealing bases and undervalued things like drawing a walk. He said it was... Stupid to save a closer to, till the ninth inning if the game hinged on a bases loaded situation in the seventh inning. And he's from Lawrence, right? So he's a, he's a Royals fan, which meant he was aware that small market teams had a huge disadvantage. that You could draft someone like Johnny Damon and make him a star, but you couldn't pay him enough to keep him. And so James developed this theory that it was possible to sort of recreate a Johnny Damon only in the aggregate. You could reproduce his stats by grouping the right two or three players together and sort of create a superstar using undervalued players. So he's promoting this. He puts out his abstract every, every year for like 25 years. All the major league teams and people in baseball would buy it, but they just only used bits and pieces. Nobody followed it completely. Until a new crop of mostly younger general managers came along, most notably Billy Bean, otherwise known as Brad Pitt, who became the general manager of the Oakland A's in 1977. And Bean had lost, if you've seen the movie, lost like three of his best players to free agency and used sabermetrics to construct a new team that won the division with the lowest payroll in baseball. Which brings us back to the curse of the Bambino and Babe Ruth in Boston. And in 2003, the Red Sox hired Bill James, this janitor from Kansas, as a senior advisor, and they fired almost half their lineup and built a brand new team using his statistics and methods, and the next year, 2004, they won their first World Series championship in 86 years and broke the curse, and they have now won it four times in his tenure. This nerdy guy from Lawrence helped end the curse of the Bambino and changed, really, the game of baseball forever, which, if you think about it, is not a small thing, given the role baseball plays in U.S. culture. I mean, America is baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie. You change something that important in a culture, and people will Resist, and they really did. Bill James is a very polarizing figure. If you're a baseball person, you know this. People either love him or hate him. And those who benefited from the old way of doing things, they they really they're rough on Bill James. The scouts whose intuition they trusted over stats, and sports writers who kind of see themselves as the guardian of, of the tradition, and big name stars who are often overpaid. These people savaged Bill James, they still do. He got in trouble just a couple years ago again. Um, He was creating, in this revered part of culture, this massive disruption, and stealing away power from some people. And suddenly everyone, um, even the most powerful people in baseball, had to begin to change just to keep up. And this is the baseball story, but of course it's not limited to baseball. There are from time to time these radical shifts in culture that are so dramatic and impactful that they become a genuine disruption of the status quo. And one thing you can count on when this happens is that those who stand to benefit from the status quo almost always resist and attack the agents of change. The problem is that once change becomes real, like once it becomes embodied in the world it's too late you can't go back to the way things were and so the rest of the world has to change and adapt to the new situation and if they don't it becomes harder and harder to continue to flourish and it's tough because change is always a disruption and it's it's contagious So when when we meet change at a point in which we have some power or influence, we will typically try to leverage it to limit the amount of change we have to endure. It's just what we do. But strangely, Christianity in, in the Christian tradition tries to teach us how to do the opposite of this. By the way, that's one sure way to spot a fundamentalist, right, in fundamentalism. They're always ready to use their power to condemn or destroy those who want change so that they can avoid the disruption of change. In Matthew's gospel that David read earlier, Jesus starts in with the subject of change right from the top of his ministry. You know, he had been down in Judea, close to Jerusalem, like the seat of political and religious power, with John the Baptist. And he had been criticizing the, the current regime for many reasons. There was um, economic injustice, the wealthy Jewish upper class. They were colluding with the Roman Empire, getting rich, and fleecing the, the Jewish working class. There was religious corruption. Um, Jewish leaders had made it very difficult and expensive to worship God. And so the poor and the immigrants really struggled to pull it off. And there was violence. Jewish leadership kind of let Rome do most of their dirty work, but they were in on it, and they benefited from a lot of the imperial violence. And so for those and many other reasons, John the Baptist was calling people out from Jerusalem, out into the wilderness, to receive what the Bible calls a baptism of repentance. It's a huge word, repentance, And Jesus was there with him until Herod got fed up with it and arrested John. And that's when Christ started his ministry, after John was arrested. Things had become too dangerous, and and Jesus had to leave that region of Judea and head back up to Galilee, where he grew up. And this would be the first of many disruptions that we find just in our text for today. We're told that from from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And this is what he would... Preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That may seem a little weird to you. Usually, it's written the kingdom of God, um, but Matthew uses the word heaven in the in the Greek. He uses this this word to to sub out for God because it, you you weren't supposed to write the name God, but it means the same thing. It's not like a separate separate idea. Like the kingdom of heaven is not. What happens when you die and go to heaven. It's, it's referring to the reign and rule of heaven of God here on earth. And kingdom, you know, in their time to say kingdom was to say government. That's, that's the only kind of government there was. And so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is in a sense, the government of God, where God gets to rule. One of my favorite definitions comes from Dallas Willard. He calls the kingdom of God, the range of Of God's effective will. That's the kingdom. So so wherever the government of God, the kingdom of God exists, God's will is done, right? Anytime the world that God imagines for us becomes embodied in some reality, that's the kingdom. And so Jesus shows up saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has actually come near. And he teaches his followers that they need to have a very specific reaction to this and and the word is to repent or in greek the word is metanoia which um, you know repent we think that means to feel really bad for something you did and say sorry and say i won't ever do it again which is not really repentance Um, metanoia in greek means change your direction that's what it means um it actually has the same root as the english word paranoia which is kind of just returning to the same delusion over and over again. Repentance is the opposite of that. It means to actually change your course, change direction, not just in your head, but in some sort of fully embodied change. There's this teacher named Richard Rohr. He always says that um, for this kind of change to happen, um, there, there need to be one of two or two things. Um, he says, only great love or great suffering can cause us to change. I think he's probably right. Often teaching and and learning can be part of that, but people don't change simply because of new information or arguments. We mostly change in response to an embodied reality, usually in the form of love or suffering, and often those are the same thing. Change happens in embodied relationships more than anything. You think about Bill James, like sending these things out for 25 years as sabermetrics, trying to convince people of his philosophy. He had all kinds of mind-blowing information, <laughs> and it had kind of just a small impact, just no significant change, until his philosophy became embodied in the world in the form of the Oakland A's. And then change came like a revolution. When Jesus began his ministry, he's saying the kingdom of God has come near. He said the only appropriate response to this is to repent, metanoia, to turn around, to change the direction of our hearts and lives, to go this new direction so that we can embody this new reality. So repentance means change. That's where Jesus starts. Really, re- repentance or change is central to the entire Christian faith. And Christianity is synonymous with change. Repentance is, is change that's embodied in the world, and change like this is always, always a disruption. because there's a break with the status quo, and, and the change that that Jesus is talking about to his followers here it's not like just an inner religious spiritual change it has to have real world consequences and the reason for this is that that what God is doing in and through Christ isn't just to change people's like beliefs or attitudes it's about changing ultimately the way the world was organized that's what he's after to move the whole world back towards shalom, toward peace, and to change the world so that everyone has enough to flourish and find wholeness. And this means a disruption. And, and actually, disruption is not, not a bug. It's a feature of Christianity. It's the, really the whole point of change. We can see this, especially in this story, and all the different disruptions that are present. For for one thing, Jesus, we're told, has to leave the wilderness down with John the Baptist and head back up to Galilee. And it's interesting, in the, in the original language, it doesn't say he left, it says he withdrew. And it's the same word they usually use to um, describe an army in retreat. He retreated, he withdrew. So he's avoiding, he's forced it's, it's a disruption. He's vo- avoiding arrest. By the way, if Jesus' gospel was only about dying for our sins, he could have stayed there and just died with John the Baptist. But he retreated. He withdrew because there's more to his ministry. Another disruption that you might have overlooked when it was read before is that he left Nazareth, it says, and then he moved to Capernaum, which is... Um, It doesn't sound like anything big, but it was a scandalous thing to do. You know, in those days, when a young Jewish man moved out of his parents' house, they just added a room on the back of the house. That's what they did. Especially oldest sons, they did not leave home. They stayed home to help run the family. But Jesus moves like 40 miles away to Capernaum. It's a major disruption of the family, which is the very foundation of Jewish life. So it's a big disruption. And then there's this odd mention of this Jewish prophecy from Isaiah. Um, The book of Joshua tells us that the land around Nazareth and up um, in the Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum was, had been given originally to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And um, centuries before Christ, the Assyrian Empire taking control of this land, and so the Jews living in that area were forced to assimilate, to learn their language, Assyrian language and customs. And then when Rome came to power, same thing happened with them. And, and so that's why it's called, um, if you remember, it's, it calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. So there were all these Jewish people in these little towns scattered all over Galilee who felt, felt a ton of Assyrian and Roman cultural influence on their lives. And this was seen as a problem. It says these people are living in darkness, right? They live in a land of the shadow of death. And that's where Jesus moves to begin his ministry. He moves to Capernaum. Now Capernaum um, was kind of cosmopolitan compared to Nazareth. It was, um, had more traffic, but it was not like a, a powerful city or something like Tiberias or Sepphoris. It was like a little fishing village um, with a Roman trade route going through the north end of town. And Jesus kind of goes there to avoid trouble because Capernaum's not really where you would go to challenge the powers. There were no important powers out there. But Capernaum is exactly where you would go to find a bunch of devout Jews who were just longing for change. That's who, that's who lived there. People longing for a disruption. You think of it like him apartheid in South Africa. It was like that. There's an oppressed race of, of people, economically and socially disadvantaged because of their faith and their ethnicity. And so Jesus come to, comes to these people who are longing for change, but they didn't feel like they had the ability to change anything. They had no power. There were no elections in Galilee in those days. He had no civil rights. The government viewed these people as just a means to an end. That's it. In fact, the taxes were so high in Galilee that it really only took one bad harvest and they could lose their land to some fat cat back in in Jerusalem who would then send a steward. That's why there's all these steward stories in the New Testament. Send a steward to basically extort people and kick them off the land or make them pay a fee. I mean, you don't think they were longing for a change? Or some kind of disruption. So then Jesus shows up and he starts to just embody the change they had been longing for. And he started calling people to repent, to, be, to change and embody that, that change and, and, and disrupt then this little town in this little region. And so he stumbled upon a couple of brothers, Simon and Andrew, fishermen casting their nets in the lake and Jesus said, come and follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. And they repented. They changed their direction. They dropped their nets and followed Jesus. Which was another huge disruption. I mean, Peter's married. right? We know this because Jesus heals his mother-in-law at some point. He and Andrew had a fishing business. They're, they supported their family. Now they're going to run off to follow Jesus. This is a massive change. And, and and once it's embodied in their lives, would have been a huge disruption to their family. Then he happens on a couple of more brothers, James and John, fishing with their father, Zebedee, which is a great name. Somebody has to name their kid Zebedee. That's an awesome name. Um, same call, same response, same disruption to family and community. And Zebedee, their father, is literally left holding the nets. And so again, this, this call to change is messing with their sacred cows. There's nothing more sacred than Jewish family responsibilities. When you read it this way, you can kind of see why it was such a scandal at the time. Jesus was calling people to repent, to change their hearts and lives, and asking them to embody that change in real physical ways. And change is always a disruption. Jesus was challenging the status quo. And so, of course, those who had power and influence used that power to try and limit the amount of change they had to endure. And so they would just savage Jesus. They would try to threaten him and intimidate him. They attacked his followers. They tried to ruin his reputation. And eventually they just used the Romans to have him killed. It's interesting. Jesus didn't really fight them over it. He mostly tried to just avoid the powerful. You know, the only time he really would confront them or get angry with them was when they tried to limit his access to the, the the meek or the poor, or the least, the lost, and the lowly, the people that needed him the most, the people longing for change and disruption. If they tried to, to um, keep him from embodying the kingdom of God to those who are longing for change, he would get pretty heated. And really, I think that's the key to understanding why Jesus called them and why Jesus calls us to repent, to metanoia, to change direction. And it's really there in the ending of our text for today. Let me read it. It says, when Jesus went throughout Galilee, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. And this is how you can tell if the government of God, the kingdom of God, has shown up because the world changes and suddenly starts to reflect God's imagination for it, God's reign and rule on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever was keeping shalom from being embodied in in a person's life was addressed sickness disease pain evil spirits seizures paralysis Jesus would change that situation so they could flourish and and the weird twist is that he called people who were already experiencing some kind of wholeness to change their hearts and lives to repent and begin to leverage what they had for the least of these you know it's a vulnerable thing to have a lot to lose and and to risk losing it anyway so that your neighbor can flourish that's a vulnerable thing it's actually a name for this in the scripture it's called being a christian <laughs> it requires vulnerability it just does to risk the disruptions that come with repentance and there's really no way around this vulnerability. It's what Jesus calls us to accept. And it's because it's the only way everyone can get in on the blessings of God. I once heard somebody say it this way, and it's stuck with me ever since. This guy said that the flourishing of the vulnerable depends upon the vulnerability of the flourishing. I think that's Right. It requires those who have much to just lay it at Christ's feet and say, you're my king and my Lord. Like, you can use all of this how you want. I repent of my own agenda, and I'm following you now for my future. And you can see why in Jesus' day, those who had a lot to lose and had their own agenda, their own little kingdom, would leverage their power to resist any kind of change And they would savage Jesus and attack him to counteract the disruptions. And this is how you know the kingdom has drawn near. The powerful go crazy trying to protect the status quo. While the ragamuffins, like the people who know their own brokenness, they turn around and follow him. They don't have to think about it. They're ready for change. They welcome the disruptions because they long for peace. And so when some little glimpse of peace becomes embodied in their world, they're ready to go. They want it. They're longing for a change. When Jesus calls um, people to repent, it's, um, it's not because he's starting a new religion. You know what I mean? That's not the point. He's trying to teach them what it means to be human and, and saying implicitly, you know, you're going the wrong direction. This isn't the way. Turn around, go this way, and you'll learn what it means to be human. And it, and it involves this open-ended willingness to change. And it's in, inextricable from Christianity itself. There's an ancient Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who, who lived uh, around, interestingly, the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So like 500 BC, just before Socrates. And he has this famous line. He said, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and he is not the same man. And he's using a river as a metaphor because it's just constantly changing and flowing by right and each time you step into the same river it's actually become a different river in in a physical sense and it's it's funny it's a thought that sort of freaks a lot of people out it's a little scary you know they think it's just a way of saying well like nothing is real nothing lasts nothing matters there's There's no meaning. That's not what Heraclitus was saying. In fact, he actually clarified what he meant in the same work. He said, the meaning of the river flowing is not that all things are changing so that we cannot encounter them twice, but that some things stay the same only by changing. And I think um, human beings are one of those things. To be human is to be the kind of thing that can Stay the same, that can continue to be human only by changing. I mean, just in a general sense, to be human is to embrace our capacity for change and really to never stop changing. To be Christian is to change in particular ways following Jesus. Let me say that again because I think it's huge. To be human is to embrace our capacity to change and never stop. To be Christian is to change in particular ways as we follow Christ as Lord and King. Either way, to refuse to change and grow is to in a sense re- like diminish our humanity, to become a little less human, a little less alive. Either be- by becoming kind of mindless robots or violent enforcers of the status quo. To refuse to change and grow and rethink our lives and really until the day we die makes us just a little less human. Because to be a human is to be the kind of thing that stays the same only by changing. And if Jesus really is the world's true Lord and if we live in a world where Christ is king, then everything, like quite literally everything and everyone has to be reimagined and reoriented constantly to a way of life that's rooted in this obedience to Christ, a life that's patterned on the life that he lives and that's sensitized to the will of God for us in any moment, any situation. And this requires, Jesus says, right from the outset above all else, it requires this willingness to repent, to change, and to accept the disruptions that come from following Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. It's, it's being a disciple. This passage teaches is simply to follow Jesus, and it begins with metanoia, change. Not like for the sheer novelty of change, you know, and not as like a strategy to somehow have the ultimate life but we change in order to continually strive to embody the kingdom of God, the world that God imagines. Ultimately so that everybody can flourish. And so for those of us who have some power, have some influence, who have um, a lot to lose, this call to metanoia, to repent, it's um, it's not a call to find some inner religious peace. It's a call to, to that line we read earlier that, that the flourishing of the vulnerable depends upon the vulnerability of the flourishing. And this is the way we come to embody this whole new way of being, this, this good news. We become gospel And it all hinges on a willingness to change. Let's pray. Just for a moment, I would invite you to um, just kind of reverently consider this question and wonder um, what comes to mind that Christ might be asking you to change. What comes to mind first? Just be curious and like, don't judge yourself. This isn't a call to feel guilty, right? But just be curious. See what comes to mind. What might Christ be asking you to change? Just pay attention to that for a second. And again, without a bunch of guilt and heavy-handed whatever, just think about what maybe repentance would look like for you with whatever came into your mind. Oh God, we thank you for this story and for Jesus' um, brave call and his courage walking around, telling everybody, wake up, turn around, go the other way. Let go of your agenda. Trust me for mine. And we want so much to live this way, but we need your help. And we do look to you, oh God, for our future. We trust that you have us and that you can keep us. And we ask um, for you to give us the courage to change and to accept the disruption that 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 will bring. Amen. If you would stand, please, and we're going to receive communion now. The way that we do it at Redemption is we just um, are released row by row and you'll be offered a, a plate of bread and a cup. And you take a little piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. As you do this, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond, I will remember or however you're comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, before he was arrested, he was gathered with all his, his guys and he took a, a loaf of bread and a cup and he made them all share in this meal. And he said that this, um, this bread is my body. This cup is my blood, my life. And he said, they're being laid down for you, poured out for you, so that you can have this new covenant, this new deal between humanity and God. And, and the way to, to this, the way to have access to this, he said, is every time you gather, do this. Eat this bread, drink the cup, take my life into your life be made out of the stuff I'm made of and then you'll embody me to the world and then you can go out and be salt and light and so this is why we receive communion every week and it's also why we just place no limits anybody who calls on the name of Christ can come to the table so if you would pray with me and let's bless it oh god we do ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup may it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?